Well, we are just a few days away from the Christmas holiday, and most people who celebrate by exchanging gifts are hoping that they have all the bases covered. And since the subject of gifts is on many people's minds, I have chosen to speak on a passage this morning that describes God's salvation to us as a gift, the greatest gift ever given and the greatest gift that could possibly be received. So let's turn together to Romans chapter 3 for what I hope will be an exhilarating time of studying God's precious word this morning. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the book of Acts, then Romans chapter 3. Please follow along as I read verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely, or being justified as a gift, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I wish there were some way I could convey to you the importance, the depth, and the richness of this text that we have just read. It would not be an exaggeration to say that this is one of the most vital, one of the most momentous, one of the most important passages in all the Word of God, if not the very most important. What we have before us here is a courtroom scene. So picture that in your mind. For 64 verses, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has been expounding on the condemned condition of every member of the human race, including you and me. The Apostle Paul has been playing the role of the prosecuting attorney. He has proven beyond reasonable doubt or any shadow of a doubt that all of us in the human race deserve God's wrath and God's punishment for eternity. That is our legal standing before the God of the universe. There is absolutely nothing we can do about our situation because our spiritual debt is astronomical. And God can't just let us off the hook Because that would violate everything about his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. There seems to be no solution to this predicament. There certainly isn't any human solution to this predicament. Although mankind tries to come up with human solutions in the form of religion, there is no human solution. So God himself devised the perfect plan for this dilemma. The Apostle Paul explains it in just three verses, right here in Romans chapter 3, and right in the center of this plan 
is a marvelous, gracious gift. Notice verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This verse actually connects with the first phrase in verse 22 where Paul says, The righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. After that statement, Paul gives two phrases of explanation which begin with the word for. He says, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those two statements, beginning with the word for, are parenthetical explanations. So if you want to read this thought without interruption, then it would read like this. The righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, being justified freely by His grace. In other words, by the act of justification, the righteousness of God is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. By the act of justification... The righteousness of God is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in verses 22 and 24. What happens to those who place faith in Jesus Christ? What happens for those who place faith in Jesus Christ? Verse 24 answers the question. It says this. Here's what happens. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There are some very key words in this verse for understanding God's marvelous gift of salvation. Probably the most important word in this verse is the word justified. The second word of this verse in the translation that I'm reading this morning. Beloved, we can never understand salvation. We can never, never understand God's gift of salvation if we don't understand the concept of justification. So let me define justification. Justification is the act of God whereby He imputes righteousness to our account or to our legal record. Justification is the act of God whereby He imputes righteousness to our account or to our record. That is such a vital concept to understand. Let me say it this way. Justification is when God declares us righteous in His sight. It is a legal act of God whereby He places Christ's righteousness on our record, our spiritual legal record. Now many people confuse justification and progressive sanctification. So let me differentiate them so that we really make sure we understand the difference here. Justification is when God declares us righteous. Sanctification, progressive sanctification, is when God makes us righteous. Justification is a legal or judicial act of God. Sanctification is an ongoing process of God. We are declared righteous instantly by the act of justification. We are made righteous daily 
through the process of progressive sanctification. There are not degrees of justification, but there are degrees of sanctification. Justification is when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us at conversion. Sanctification is when the righteousness of Christ is imparted to us as we grow to be more like Christ. It is extremely important to understand these distinctions because this passage is not talking about progressive sanctification. This is talking about justification. This is talking about how can we be right before God? How can we have a proper, right, righteous, legal standing before God? Justification is not a change wrought by God in us. It is a change of our standing with God, our relation to God. Since this is a legal term, a judicial term, and since this passage, as I mentioned, is a courtroom scene, let me illustrate this, this whole process with an illustration from the courtroom. And we'll all be able to understand this and relate to this. Let's say that someone has been tried for the crime of robbery. This man committed dozens of robberies over a several-year period, and the amount he has stolen totals in the billions. During the trial against the man, the evidence is overwhelming and conclusive. The man is guilty. He is guilty of dozens of counts of robbery, and he owes billions of dollars to people. The judge hears all the evidence. The judge declares the man guilty. And in addition to his punishment of a $90 million fine, the judge also orders the man to pay back the money to all the people from whom he stole. But the problem is, the man doesn't have any of the money left because he has squandered it all. That's the predicament. He owes billions of dollars back and a $90 million fine, but he can do nothing about his situation. Then, someone steps forward to the bench and offers to pay the $90 million fine and to, and to pay back the billions of dollars owed to the victims. The judge who has the authority to do this, the judge accepts the payment from the substitute, and at that point, the criminal is declared innocent in the eyes of the court. Is he really innocent? Be careful how you answer that. Legally, at that point, he is innocent. In the eyes of the court, he is declared innocent, although he maybe has not changed one bit as a person. That is the way it is with justification. We are guilty. But God declares us righteous because someone else has paid our debt. And that someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, justification in and of itself does not change us. It doesn't change who we are, what we are like. We are still the same sinful people we always were. But justification changes our legal standing in the eyes of God. Now, let me hasten to add that those whom God justifies, He also regenerates and sanctifies to actually make us righteous. But justification in and of itself is not God making us righteous. It is God declaring us righteous. That's why Paul says what he does in chapter 4 of this same letter, just the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 4. He says this, 
He says, now to him who works, that is, if you're trying to work for something, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but rather believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Don't miss that key statement there in verse 5. Whom is it that God justifies according to verse 5? Whom is it? It says God justifies the ungodly. God declares us righteous even though we are actually ungodly. How can God do that? It sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can God do that? He can do that because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why chapter 3 verse 24 says that God does this through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The word redemption basically means payment. Jesus Christ paid our debt. And on that basis, God can and does justify those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me emphasize again that those whom God justifies, He also regenerates and sanctifies. God declares us righteous legally by justification. But He doesn't stop there. He also gives us new life in Christ and begins to make us righteous through His work of sanctification. Paul hints at this by bringing in the word picture of redemption, as we'll see in just a moment. But let me hasten to add this point. There is more to justification than just being forgiven and declared innocent. That's where the courtroom illustration that I used a moment ago sort of breaks down, because justification is more than just God forgiving us and declaring us innocent. We do not stand before God as merely innocent if we have faith in Jesus Christ. We stand before God as righteous because the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ has been legally transferred to us. Some of you maybe have heard, and this is a very common definition in Sunday school and with with little ones trying to, trying to describe this very difficult concept of justification. Maybe you've heard it described this way. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. You know, there's a little play on words there. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that's true, but it's only half true. When God justifies us, then in, in, in His sight, we are just as if we'd never sinned, but we are more than that. Because we are positively righteous in God's sight due to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, our legal standing before God is not just the absence of something negative against us. It's the presence of something positive for us, and that is the righteousness of Christ. Now all of that that we've just been talking about, all of that is bound up in this one word here in verse 24, justified. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word freely here in this verse, being justified freely, this word is a fascinating term. It literally means without a cause or without a reason. This is the word that's uh, in John 15, 25, where Jesus said, They hated me without a cause. Same exact word as this word here. They hated Jesus for no reason. There's no reason to hate Jesus. There's no cause. 
That's the same word that's used here in this verse. So this is the Apostle Paul's way of saying there was no reason why God should justify us. No reason. It's not as if God looks at us and says, well, you know, they are so worthy. I think I'll justify them. No, there was no cause. We don't deserve it. We can do nothing to earn it. In fact, this word can be translated, and maybe it is in your, uh, depending on what English translation you have with you this morning, this Greek word can be translated as a gift. We are justified freely. Or you could say it this way. We are justified as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It would be an understatement to say that there has never been a greater gift given There has never been a greater gift received than the gift of justification. No greater gift because it has eternal implications, eternal ramifications. So Paul says here in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption is another key word in this verse. It literally means to buy out of the slave market. It was used in Paul's day, in the first century, to refer to buying a slave out of the slave market. We we were bought out of the slave market of sin by Christ and set free. That's why I said earlier that Paul is hinting at the fact that those whom God declares righteous, he also inevitably makes righteous. We weren't bought out of the slave, we weren't bought and then left in the slave market of sin. We were bought out of the slave market of sin and set free. The concept of redemption is always related to being freed from our sin legally and actually. For example, Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14 says, In Christ... We have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. We were slaves to sin, so we needed to be redeemed. We needed to be bought. We needed to be purchased. We could not free ourselves. We could not pay the price. We had to be purchased. And Paul reminds us here that that was accomplished at the cross. This raises the question, why would God do all of this for us? Why? There are three words in verse 24 that explain the divine motivation in salvation. They are the words, by His grace. By His grace. It's all by God's grace. The word grace is used 24 times in the book of Romans because it's such a key part of God's plan of righteousness, God's plan of salvation. Listen, if God is going to declare us righteous, if God is going to go on from there and make us righteous, which is what the book of Romans is all about, then it is going to have to be by His grace. Because frankly, none of us deserve any of this. We deserve none of this. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. Paul just said in verse 23 of Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Now, that doesn't mean that every human being is as bad as he could possibly be. It's not saying that we're all as awful as we could possibly be, but we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We fall short of what we should be. Someone has illustrated it this way. Let's say you were to line everyone up on the east coast of the United States to see who could jump from the east coast of the United States across the ocean to Europe. How many can make it? None. Now, some people, you know, if you're an Olympic long jumper, you might jump 20-some feet into the water. And if you, you know, are uncoordinated, you might fall into the water. But nobody's going to make it all the way over. All fall short. Some go farther than others. That's the way it is with humanity. Some people are better than others. Some people are nicer than others. But all fall short, infinitely short of God's standard. So we don't deserve God's favor. What we deserve is God's punishment, His wrath, as Paul has explained in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. But God is a God of grace. In fact, He is so gracious to sinful men and women that He was willing to sacrifice His Son. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to think of God as callous or heartless with His Son. On the contrary, we cannot fathom how much God loves His Son. That is what makes the cross such a magnanimous act of love on the Father's part and on the Son's part. Those of you who are parents can relate in a small way if you stop to think of how much it would hurt you to give one of your children up to a torturous death to pay for something that someone else has done. Multiply that thousands of times, and then we begin to get a grasp of God's grace. You see, beloved, salvation is free for us. It's a gift to us, but it costs God a great deal. The price was the precious blood of His precious Son, Jesus. So verse 25 says this, speaking of Christ Jesus, It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Here Paul is saying the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ satisfied once and for all the holy demands of God. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament could never satisfy God's holy standards. That's why this same word is used in Hebrews 9.5 for the mercy seat of the tabernacle's Ark of the Covenant. If you remember the story from the Old Testament, then you know that there a bull's blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement to cover Israel's sins and satisfy God's righteous demands for another year. But this verse is telling us Jesus' death is the final sacrifice that completely satisfied God's demands against sinful people, thus averting His wrath from those who believe. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the righteous law of God, and then He died to pay the price for those of us who violated the law of God. And that death, That sacrificial death was acceptable to God. That's what the word propitiation means here in this verse. It means to satisfy the holy law of God, to satisfy the justice of God, to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. There's a very powerful picture behind these two ideas of redemption and propitiation by the blood of Christ. Two very powerful pictures found in the Old Testament Day of Atonement described in Leviticus 16. 
Since it's maybe been a while since you've had your devotions in Leviticus, let me remind you of what Leviticus 16 says. Two goats, here's here's the prescription from Leviticus 16. Two goats were presented at the altar, and one of them was chosen for a sacrifice, one of the two. The goat was slain, and the blood taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, that golden cover on the Ark of the Covenant. That sprinkled blood covered the two tables of the law that were inside the ark. This shed blood temporarily met the righteous demands of God for a year, because this had to be done every year on the Day of Atonement. The priest then put his hands on the head of the other goat and confessed the sins of the people. Then that goat was taken out into the wilderness and set free sent out into the wilderness to symbolize the carrying away of sin. And here Paul is drawing on those pictures, and he is saying, listen, that's what God accomplished at the cross. As I said earlier, God could not just let us off the hook, even if he wanted to. That would have violated his justice, his holiness, his righteous demands, his righteous character, a price had to be paid so that we could be acquitted, so we could be righteous. And the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. God satisfied his own justice by the death of Christ. Before the the service this morning, someone asked me this question. They said, just in sort of one statement, how would you summarize the difference between religion and faith? And my answer was this. In religion, it is man trying to make his own way to God. In faith, it is accepting God's way of reconciliation. That's the difference. God satisfied his own justice by the death of Christ. So verse 25 says, God set him forth to be a propitiation. It wasn't what man did to Jesus on the cross that purchased our redemption. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the beating, the whip, the whipping, the slapping, the, the spitting. It wasn't the, the nails driven into his hands and his feet. It was what God did. God placed your sin and my sin on Jesus Christ. And then God poured out his wrath on his own son. And that's why Paul uses the term blood here in verse 25. Jesus died a substitutionary, sacrificial death, just like the animals did in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But the major difference is is that those animal sacrifices weren't permanent. They weren't efficacious to really avert the wrath of God forever. But Jesus' death accomplished that. So Romans 3.25 is the solution to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Romans 3.25 says Jesus took God's wrath for us when God set him forth to be a propitiation by his blood, which means by his death. God's wrath is directed toward us because of our sinfulness, and it's a righteous wrath. It's not an unreasonable wrath. It's a deserved wrath. But that wrath is averted away from those who believe by the death of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God set forth his son as a payment 
that satisfied the righteous demands of his justice, then and only then could God be just to grant us justification. Notice verse 25 again. It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These two verses answer all the questions concerning God's justice and God's righteousness. For example, how could God seemingly allow sin in the Old Testament time to go unpunished? Look at all the things that are recorded in the Old Testament, all the sinful activities and actions. How could God just allow that and not seem to do much about it? Obviously, the animal sacrifices didn't take the sin away. How could God just acquit us of our guiltiness of sin? The answer is because of the death of Christ. Think of it this way, beloved. When Jesus died, God reached all the way back to Adam and took care of all the sins of believers that he seemed to simply pass over. So no one can question God's justice. And today, when a person places faith in Christ and God justifies that person, declares that person righteous, no one can question God's justice. The benefits of Jesus' death go backward and forward. They go backward to benefit those believers who live before the cross, and they come forward to benefit those of us who believe on this side of the cross. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, God can be just and the justifier of those who place faith in Christ. Let me say it this way. God can maintain his justice and at the same time extend his grace to us because God's justice and God's grace kissed at the cross. This is such an important point to the Apostle Paul that in verse 26, he repeats the phrase he used in verse 25, the phrase, to demonstrate his righteousness. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that God did not compromise his righteousness by seemingly passing over previous sins or by declaring us righteous. You know, this probably isn't is as big of a deal to the mind of modern man as it should be. Because unfortunately, we seem to minimize the importance of justice today. But think of it this way. For God to pass over wrong, for God to just simply excuse wrong, is as much an act of injustice as it would be to condemn innocent people to a fate they don't deserve. Because God is righteous, he can't do either. God did everything exactly right. This passage tells us God did everything exactly right in order to maintain his justice while at the same time justifying ungodly men and women. God did it the right way. Salvation is a marvelous work of God, beloved. Marvelous work. He gets the glory in it all. John Whitmer put it this way, quote, God's divine dilemma was how to satisfy his own righteousness and its demands against sinful people, and at the same time, how to demonstrate his grace, love, and mercy to restore rebellious, alienated creatures to himself. Praise be to God that he solved this dilemma 
through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that we can be righteous in God's eyes. Paul has labored in this passage. As you can see, this is not an, a simple passage just to read. It's a very tight argument that Paul weaves here. He labors to describe as thoroughly as possible all that God has done for us, this marvelous gift, the greatest gift of all. He has used three different word pictures to help us get a grasp on God's abundant salvation. Three pictures so that maybe one of them would really stick with us or resonate with us. He uses the picture of the law court when he uses the term justified. He uses the picture of the slave market when he uses the term redemption. He uses the picture of the temple when he uses the term propitiation. Only when we understand all three of those aspects of God's salvation do we really get a handle on the fullness of God's gracious gift in Christ. In Christ, we have pardon. In Christ, we have liberation. In Christ, we have atonement. And as a result, we can stand righteous in God's eyes. Now, how is this righteous standing before God attained? You know, all that we've talked about thus far would really be irrelevant if we can't get this. I mean, for God to do all that he has done would be completely useless if we can't attain it, if there's not not a way that we can get this gift. So how do we get this gift? Let's put it in those terms. How do we receive this gift? The key is right here in this text. In verse 24, Paul describes justification, this great gift. In verses 25 and 26, he says that the means or the avenue To receive this gift is faith in Jesus Christ. The last phrase in verse 26 is that he might be just and the justifier, here it is, of the one who has faith in Jesus. He already stated this explicitly a few verses ago in verse 22. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. God's great gift of salvation is transferred to the account of those who place faith in Jesus Christ. This same truth is reiterated again in chapter 4, which we read a moment ago, verse 5, to him who does not work, that is the person who doesn't try to work for his salvation, earn it through religion, earn it through good deeds, earn it by his behavior, his morality, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God justifies those who place faith in Jesus Christ. And because this truth is so important, eternally important, it's reiterated again in chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please hear me this morning. The only way to have peace with God is to place faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to receive God's gracious, momentous gift of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that means far more than just believing that Jesus lived and died. That's not faith. That's that's mental assent to facts. 
The kind of faith Paul is talking about is illustrated here in Romans chapter 4 by Abraham, by David. Their faith was more than just mental assent to facts. If you go back to Abraham's life and read about it, you will see that his faith was the kind of faith that wholeheartedly surrendered everything to follow God's will for his life. That's faith. That's the kind of faith Paul is talking about in Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. True faith in Jesus Christ is not merely believing facts. It's embracing Him. It's entrusting your life to Him, not just believing facts about Him. In fact, on a little technical note, in chapter 3, verse 22, when Paul uses the phrase faith in Jesus Christ, he used what is known in the Greek language as a present tense participle, which emphasizes ongoing action, ongoing trust, not just some one-time decision. So Romans 3.22 says that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that is, those who have embraced Jesus Christ, those who have received Jesus Christ by faith, receive the righteousness of God on their record because they are justified by God. So let me ask you this morning, are you justified? What is your legal standing before God? Have you received the greatest gift that has ever been offered to to mankind? The gift of justification? The gift of salvation? Have you entrusted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I urge you to do that today. Otherwise, when Christmas rolls around in just a few days, regardless of what gifts you give, regardless of what gifts you receive, you're going to miss the greatest gift of all. By far the greatest gift of all, which is the gift of justification the gift of a righteous standing before God, the gift of sins forgiven, the gift of eternal life that is found through faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, I urge you to receive him and receive the greatest gift possible at this Christmas season. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head this morning and just take a a couple minutes to reflect on what you have seen in God's Word and what you have heard from God's Word, come back to that question I asked just a moment ago. Are you justified before God? Have you been declared righteous by God? Has the righteousness of Jesus Christ been imputed to your record, to your account? Have you received the greatest gift ever? The gift of justification, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation, the gift gift that has eternal ramifications and eternal implications. No greater gift. I urge you this morning to receive Jesus Christ and by receiving him, you receive this great gift. Father, as we close our service this morning, we pray that you would take these words that we have seen from your word, somewhat of a a complicated passage, certainly very technical, but extremely important, eternally important. Because what is more important than, than our eternal destiny? Everything else in this life pales in comparison. Regardless of, of, of what kind of, of life we have here on earth, it pales in comparison to where we spend eternity. So give us understanding of this passage we have considered this morning. 
Give us clarity in our minds. Help us to understand that we can do nothing in ourselves, on our own, to earn righteous, a righteous standing before you. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we want to be, no matter how religious we are, we cannot, we cannot earn a righteous standing before you. But we praise you that you did the work for us. You provided for the gift by sending your son. That's what we celebrate at this time of the year, that you sent your son to this earth, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the dead in victory so that we could have the greatest gift of all. And so, Father, those, for those of us who have received that gift, we pray that you would enrich our, our understanding and increase our appreciation for what we have in Christ. And, Father, for anyone who is hearing these words and does not know you personally, has not received this great gift. May your Holy Spirit grant understanding, conviction, enlightenment to see the eternal implications and ramifications of this issue. And maybe at this Christmas season, this would be the time they would respond personally and receive Jesus Christ by faith. We pray all of these things in his matchless, his wonderful, his gracious name. Amen.